This is Guns and Butter. Bobby Baker would later declare that Jack would not live out his first term and that he would die a violent death. Lyndon Johnson would send his chief administrative assistant, Cliff Carter, down to Dallas to make sure all the arrangements were in place for the assassination after he had convinced Jack that he needed to travel to Texas to mend fences between warring Democratic factions there. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. James Fetzer. Today's show, What Happened to JFK? Jim Fetzer is McKnight Professor Emeritus at the University of Minnesota Duluth, an author and researcher. A former Marine Corps officer, Jim Fetzer has published widely on the theoretical foundations of scientific knowledge, computer science, artificial intelligence, cognitive science and evolution, and mentality. The founder of Scholars for 9-11 Truth, his latest books include The Evolution of Intelligence, The 9-11 Conspiracy, The Scamming of America, Render Unto Darwin, and The Place of Probability in Science. Jim Fetzer and I had just returned from Dallas from a three-day JFK assassination conference hosted by Judith Vary Baker. When Jim called to accept my last-minute invitation to come on Guns and Butter Live, November 22nd, he said, Bonnie, you've got the right guy on the right day. Jim Fetzer, welcome. Oh, Bonnie, I'm just thrilled to be here. Yeah, it's absolutely wonderful. I think the station is sensational. I think you're wonderful. You're your show is celebrated. It's a legend. It's just a real pleasure to be here today, especially. Well, Jim, it's such an honor to have you on, and thank you so much for the uh, great greeting. We want to get straight on to your, I know you've got a lot of new research information on the Kennedy assassination, but uh, what did you think of the conference? Well, I thought the conference was uh, quite good overall. Uh, however, I do believe Judith tried to pack in too many speakers in the time frame. I think every, I've organized a good number of conferences myself, and I think it's best to have regular one-hour slots so you have ample opportunity to present and answer questions. Uh, She had so many speakers that most of us were reduced to 40 minutes, which is really not enough to allow the question and exchange that are such an important part of these meetings. Well, I totally agree. I think they should be an hour long. But, but you know, I was bowled over by some of the speakers were just incredible. Not only yourself, you spoke several times, but I had never heard before Dr. Cyril Wecht. My God, a dynamite speaker. I was so impressed. And then there was Robert Tannenbaum, the the attorney that resigned from the... Uh, um, the, the House Select Committee on Assassination. That's right. That's right. What oh, two great Americans. Very impressive. And there were a lot, a lot of speakers. I also got a big kick out of uh, the, the Sons of the CIA, uh, yeah. St. John Hunt, and Chris Milligan, who is the publisher, of course, of uh, Trine Day, who publishes uh, incredibly good books. They're both, their fathers were both CIA officers. We know about E. Howard Hunt, but it turns out that Chris Milligan father, actually, when they were in Vietnam, he was replaced by Ed Lansdale. I didn't know that. Well, 
Ed Lansdale gets around, we believe. In fact, he, it was he who positioned the shooters and determined the sequence of shots in Dealey Plaza, Bonnie. Wow. Well, Jim, let's get into your new research. I know you've got some blockbuster stuff on Lee Harvey Oswald, on the fake pictures. Let's just get into it. What do you think is most important today? Well, I believe we've absolutely uh, shattered the cover-up with our latest discoveries, uh, which include that the Bethesda autopsy photos, which have been widely published and circulated, are not of JFK. In other words, they use someone else's body. We've been able to prove it. This is absolutely devastating. Uh, Unfortunately, Robert Grodin appears to have been responsible for distributing these photographs, but we've been able to demonstrate by doing superpositions that they are not photographs of JFK. And Bonnie, uh, I have the superpositions, the proofs of the key points I'm going to make available on my blog. So if anyone would like to see what I'm talking about, go to jamesfetzer.blogspot.com. You'll find it's my most recent blog, so it will pop right up. It's entitled JFK Bethesda Autopsy Photos, Not JFK Oswald Frame Warren Report a Sham. I think as of today, you can say the Warren Commission report is officially dead, Bonnie. It's taken us quite a few years to demonstrate, but I don't think there's much left after you hear the rest of what I have to report. Well, uh, Jim, let's go through it. I've got it up here. JFK Bethesda autopsy photos, not JFK. So what can we say about these photos? Well, what we can say is they were strange from the beginning. You'll notice at the top, and and Robert Grodin in his book, The Killing of a President, 1994, was responsible for them getting them out. He's taken great pride in having discovered them, but they're oddities. For example, Look at the top photographs, Bonnie, how long is the hair, how much gunk there is. In fact, very, very different than JFK's very well-manicured hairstyle. If you take a look at any of the photographs uh, of him in Dealey Plaza before his head was blown off, you realize something's wrong with these photographs. In fact, when the Assassination Records Review Board was doing a deposition of Commander James Humes, who was responsible for the autopsy, and appears to have not only enlarged the neck wound to transform it from a wound of entry to a wound of exit, but to have even taken a cranial saw to the skull of JFK and converted a fist-sized wound into an entire back-of-the-head wound so that he could maintain that it had been blown off by a shot that entered at the base of the back of the head and exited the top of the back of the head in order to convert obvious evidence of a shot that had been fired from in front that actually entered the right temple, blew his brains out the back of his already weakened cranium to the left rear with such force that when they impacted with Officer Bobby Hargis riding there, he initially thought he himself had been shot. So that a question was put to Humes, at the request of my uh, my collaborators, did they give the patient a shampoo and a haircut during the autopsy? To which Humes, of course, replied, no, 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 no. I mean, of course, it sounds absurd, but there's that much difference between these autopsy photographs and the actual condition of JFK's scalp at the time. In fact, if you scroll down further, Bonnie, mm-hmm. you'll see some comparisons 
uh, with the autopsy photographs and JFK's left profile in the one case and his right profile in the other, and you'll see the, 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 the disparity there. But notice just below those, we have the superposition where we impose the left profile over the left profile of the, of the purported uh, corpse at autopsy, and it's obvious that they are not the same person. In fact, this is complemented by what Jackie and Bobby said at the time, uh, contemplating whether or not to have an open casket during the, uh, the, the, the wake held at the nation's capital. They said, that doesn't even look like Jack. And they decided not to have an open casket. And, of course, it didn't look like Jack because it wasn't Jack. Well, you know, I'm no forensic scientist, but just looking at the photos, I couldn't agree more. That doesn't look like a a Kennedy at all. Now, we have the interesting case of a fellow by the name of J.D. Tippett, whom Lee Oswald is alleged to have shot in a different part of town. There are many oddities associated with the Tippett shooting, uh, it was actually taking place about uh, 1.10 in the afternoon when Lee Oswald was actually already in the Texas theater buying popcorn from a fellow named Butch Barrows, who has given an affidavit about it that you can find online. So this was set up to frame Oswald. They even planted a wallet. I mean, how many wallets is a man supposed to carry? Because when Lee was arrested at the Texas theater subsequently, he had a wallet that had two forms of identification, one for Alec Heidel, another for Lee Oswald. Yet they planted a wallet uh, in relation to the Tippett body. But here's the fascinating part about it, Bonnie. Uh, Tippett uh, was shot three times in the torso and then once in the right temple while he was lying on the ground, which is interesting since Jack was also hit in the right temple. Uh, a woman, Aquila Clemens, said she had seen the shooting take place, and there were two shooters, and neither of them looked like Lee Oswald. The first officer on the scene found four shell casings that had been ejected from a, a, an automatic, and he put his initials on the shell casings. They were of two different manufacturers, Remington Rand and, and uh, Western Cartridge, suggesting that, indeed, it was two different weapons that had been used using the two different types of ammunition. When they later discovered the glitch, because Oswald had a revolver, and it would have been absurd for him to stop and open his revolver and remove the incriminating shell casings, they made a substitution. Only now they had three of one making one of the other. This is one of many ways in which they manipulated the evidence in this case. Now, Robert Morningstar from New York, a longtime student of JFK, has speculated that because Tippett bore a striking resemblance to JFK, that he might have been shot in order to be used as a body double at Bethesda. But as you'll observe, I note that uh, Tippett was undergoing an autopsy that afternoon by Earl Rose, M.D., who was a world-famous medical examiner. It only began at 3.15 p.m. Central Time. That would already be 4.15 p.m. Eastern time. But the use of his body at Bethesda appears to have been problematical because these autopsies take, you know, five or six hours as a rule. Uh, This man, Earl Rose, is completely a man of integrity. I have the uh, uh, Tippett autopsy report, and frankly, in the autopsy report, he doesn't look that much like JFK. I've therefore drawn the inference that the body that they actually used was one they'd found in the U.S. military, considering the millions of enlisted men. They could find somebody who looks like almost anyone they want, 
Dennis David, who is the non-commissioned officer, was keeping charge of a record of who went in and out of the morgue, had been instructed not to record, not to log in the body of someone described as a major, which was a violation of autopsy protocol, morgue protocol. I believe it was the major they had selected to serve as the replacement for Jack Kennedy in these photographs. Well, that's interesting, Jim. I've never heard that before because, of course, J.D. Tippett, of course, is the so-called Kennedy lookalike, and um, he does have a strong resemblance to Kennedy. So that's very interesting that you've run that down. Obviously, he couldn't be having an autopsy in two different places at once. That's exactly right. But we've discovered more, too, Bonnie, which is equally fascinating. For example, as you scroll down, you'll see the Life magazine cover that was used to frame Oswald in the eyes of the public. He's holding the Manlicker Cano, with which he's alleged to have shot JFK. He's got a, a revolver, a pistol belt with a revolver, with which he's alleged to have shot uh, Tippett, although I've explained the problems with the shell casings. He's, he's holding a communist newspaper, actually two of them, the worker and the militant. It's interesting that a colleague of mine who is an expert on the history of communism said that the, uh, the, the philosophies of communism espoused by the worker and militant were so divergent that if followers of the one encountered followers of the other, they'd break out in fistfights and even try to kill each other. Jim Mars and I long since did an analysis of this backyard photograph, one of which was shown to Lee Oswald by Will Fritz, who was the homicide detective interrogating him. He said that his face on someone else's body and that he'd be able to prove it with time, given that he knew something about photography. Well, Lee, of course, didn't live to do it. But Jim Mars and I co-authored an article entitled Framing the Patsy, the Case of Lee Harvey Oswald, and concluded it had been staged, as Lee had told Will Fritz. We inferred on the basis of the height, build, and chin, which was a block chin, not Oswald's more tapered chin but also an abnormality of the right forearm, a kind of lump from a, a bone that apparently didn't heal properly, that this actually had been Roscoe White, who was a Dallas police officer with ties to the CIA. Larry uh, Rivera discovered a photograph of Roscoe White in a swimsuit at a beach in the same position as Lee in this photograph and was able to do this superposition to confirm that indeed uh, the backyard photographs were faked using Roscoe White as a stand-in for Lee Oswald. If you play the, the short movie there, you'll see how conclusive is the comparison. It's truly fascinating, Bonnie. I'm speaking with author and researcher Dr. James Fetzer. Today's show, What Happened to JFK? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Uh, Jim, why don't you give out your blog spot address again so people who missed it could follow along here? Absolutely. It's jamesfetzer.blogspot.com, Bonnie. Okay. And you'll find it's the, mo- it's the most recent blog, so just go there and you'll have it at your fingertips. Now, Jim, have you finished with the Lee Oswald photo? Should we move on to the doorway, or do we want to say yeah, some more about yeah. No, if anyone uh, b- just plays that short uh, video there, they'll see it's unmistakable that the stand-in for Lee, I mean, he's not only got the little lump, he's the right height, the right size, the right build, clearly, and he's got the right chin, Bonnie. That was the, one of the most distinctive features. Roscoe White had the chin. 
Now, it's interesting that uh, Roscoe was a Dallas police officer with ties to the CIA. In fact, his son, after his death, discovered a diary he kept, which is typical of agents of the CIA. They need to know where you are on any occasion in order to fabricate documents proving you were somewhere else should the need arise to do it. He also appears to be the police officer uh, known as Badgeman on the grassy knoll who fired a shot at the limousine, but it apparently would have hit Jackie. So even though it would have been the easiest shot, they were under strict instructions that she must not be harmed. So he pulled the shot, wound up in the grass, opposite the grassy knoll where it was picked up and pocketed by a, a Dallas uh, uh, police lieutenant. Okay, Jim, uh, thank you very much for that. Now let's go to uh, number three. He was in the doorway on your blog spot. Yes, this is absolutely completely fascinating. Uh, uh, there's an area in this very famous photograph known as the Alchin 6, taken by Associated Press photographer James Ike Alchin. It, you can see the presidential limousine in the foreground. You can see in the background the book depository. There's an area there in the, in the, in the entryway to the depository that has become an object of a great deal of attention. You can see it here because, ironically, Robert Grodin has spent a lot of time on this, too, where he became a special counsel to the House Select Committee on Assassinations when it reinvestigated the case in 1977-78. Ironically, Bonnie, uh, Grodin, as a special counsel to the HSCA, argued that it was Billy Lovelady, who was the figure in the center there, and not Lee Oswald, even though previously, a year before, he'd been asserting precisely the opposite. He had a new book with Peter Modell entitled JFK, The Case for Conspiracy, and was even quoted in a Orlando, Florida, Star Sentinel newspaper uh, as defending the proposition that Lee was in the doorway during the shooting. But something intervened in the meanwhile, and he reversed his position to argue that it was Billy Lovelady in that position rather than Lee. If you look at that part of the photograph, you can see it's obviously been altered because there's a figure both in front of and behind doorman's left shoulder. So unless he's simply missing his shoulder, which is an anatomical uh, virtual impossibility, this obviously has to be an altered photograph. Notice, too, the man with his hands raised to protect his eyes from the sun. His shirt has been obfuscated. You see that massive white blob. He's clearly wearing a short sleeve shirt. Well, this, these both turn out to be crucial because we had previously determined that this was Lee Oswald based upon the height, the weight, the build, the shirt, and the T-shirt. In fact, Bonnie, it's fascinating uh, because when Lee was arrested, his, his appearance resembled so much the figure in the doorway here. They had him remove his outer shirt and took his mug shot in just his T-shirt. But they resembled one another to the point that Lee used to tug at the, at the collar of his T-shirt and pull it down in a V, and when they photographed him in the in T-shirt the alone, you can see the V. What Larry has done is to find photographs of Lee and of Billy Lovelady that he's been able to impose on the facial features so that in addition to the height, weight, build, shirt, and T-shirt, we've now been able to confirm that Doorman, as he's known, has the same facial features as Lee Oswald, too. Uh, that's the first of the two images you see. If you go below, you'll see... 
Uh, Billy Lovelady does not. The ears are wrong. The jaw is wrong. The nose is wrong. In fact, Billy said he thought it was odd they'd be confused because he was two to three inches shorter and 15 to 20 pounds lighter. He'd actually gone to the FBI on 29 February 1964 at their request wearing the shirt he'd worn on that occasion, and it was a red and white, a vertically striped short sleeve shirt, which explains why they had to obfuscate the figure there with his hands raised. The shirt would have been so obvious and so distinctive. Larry found suitable photographs of Billy, too, and he's been able to determine that the man with his hands raised was indeed Billy Lovelady. And if you scroll down further, you'll see where he's done a reconstruction of the doorway area in color, where you can see uh, the doorman in the reddish-brown, long-sleeve, richly textured shirt. And standing beside him with his arms raised to protect his eyes from the sun is Billy Lovelady in his red and white, vertically striped, short-sleeve shirt. And, Jim, of course, we're talking about the Alchin's photograph, part of which is the ground floor doorway to the book depository. And the significance of all of this, of course, is that it, if it is proven and shown, which Jim Fetzer is now doing, that Lee Harvey Oswald was standing in the doorway of the book depository to observe the presidential motorcade, then he could not have been a lone assassin of President John Kennedy. You're exactly right, Bonnie. That's why this has been such an important issue and why Grodin's role in obfuscating by claiming that he had done a, a pixel analysis of the sleeves of a shirt he claimed Billy Lovelady was wearing, which is completely different than the red and white vertically striped shirt. Instead, it's a red and black checkered shirt that another figure was wearing in the doorway. Grodin even made photographs of, of Billy wearing a red and black checkered shirt, which Judith Mary Baker, who sponsored the conference, who was Lee Oswald, uh, Oswald's girlfriend the summer before he came to Dallas, has shown to be uh, uh, opposite of Grodin's testimony. He said that the red and black checkered shirt was a closer match to the doorman shirt uh, than was Lee's own richly textured shirt he was wearing when he was arrested. But Judith has shown precisely the opposite is the case. In fact, the red and black checkered shirt preserves features that are completely inconsistent with a shirt on doorman, whereas the same study, the pixel study of Lee's shirt, the left sleeve, is a very close match. So Broden was, for whatever reason, he appears to have been co-opted, giving a, a testimony that he actually knew himself to be false, given his previous determination that Lee had been in the doorway. I mentioned in passing other students of JFK have arrived at the same conclusion as long ago as Harold Weisberg, who published a series called Whitewash. In Whitewash 2, or Photographic Whitewash, published in 1966, in the last few pages, Weisberg spent a lot of time explaining how the Warren staff was seeking to obfuscate the fact that Lee Oswald had been in the doorway. Even Jim Garrison, the celebrated uh, district attorney of New Orleans, who was lionized in Oliver Stone's magisterial film JFK, had concluded that Lee had been in the doorway. Ralphson Kay, who founded the Oswald Innocence Campaign as a chiropractor, was very used to working with people so their clothing would fit better on their bodies, 
And it was Ralph who convinced me that the key to identifying the man in the doorway was not the facial features, which at that point in time appeared rather indistinct, but rather the height, the weight, the clothing, the shirt, the T-shirt. He was spot on and exactly right. We never anticipated having this new technology that Larry Rivera has pioneered that would enable us to verify that it was indeed Lee Oswald. Given there are only two alternatives for the man in the doorway, Bonnie, we have safely concluded that indeed it was Lee Oswald. And precisely as you observe, this not only means he cannot have been the lone demanded gunman, but he cannot have even been one of the shooters. Jim Fetzer, how about we go on to discuss the conspiracy itself? Uh, I, on the plane home from Dallas, of course, I met uh, St. John Hunt, son of E. Howard Hunt, and I read his book, Bond of Secrecy, My Life with CIA Spy and Watergate Conspirator, E. Howard Hunt. And I thought I'd take a little bit out of this book that uh, E. Howard Hunt talked about in order to just kick off the conversation about the conspiracy itself, because it's very complicated and people have different ideas about it. Now, there's a filmmaker, Eric Hamburg, who wrote the afterword to St. John Hunt's book called E. Howard Hunt and the JFK Plotters. He actually uh, videotaped a lot of the interviews with E. Howard Hunt. And in St. John Hunt's book, he talks about E. Howard Hunt's identification. He named eight central figures in the conspiracy. And I want to just run them all by you, and we, we can have a talk about this. E. Howard Hunt named Lyndon Johnson, Cord Meyer, David Atlee Phillips, also known as Maurice Bishop, William K. Harvey of the CIA, Antonio Vesiana of Alpha 66, Frank Sturgis, Operation 40, David Sanchez Morales, and Lucian Sarti. And I wanted to kick off the discussion because I think you may have uh, uh, some other ideas about who the actual assassins were. Lucian Sarti is a French Corsican assassin. And according to Eric Hamburg, who interviewed E. Howard Hunt, and he was actually quite knowledgeable about the assassination, read many, many books on it. He may have even worked on the film JFK. I can't remember exactly, but I think so. Now, according to what he was, he said that the eight central figures that E. Howard Hunt named fit in with the research that he had done. And he talked about William K. Harvey, who apparently, from what I know, was the CIA head of the Executive Action Program, which was the assassination program, and that he he had a big fight with Robert Kennedy, and Robert Kennedy had William Harvey transferred to Rome. Now, apparently, it was in Europe, and apparently, well, this is very complex, but in Miami, E. Howard Hunt met with Frank Sturgis, and Frank Sturgis talked about the, quote, big event, and that William K. Harvey was involved, and E. Howard Hunt said that William Harvey was an alcoholic psycho, and he wasn't going to be in any uh, kind of an operation with William K. Harvey. But according to this book, then William K. Harvey 
was the one who recruited French Corsican assassins and that they were the shooters in the plaza. Now, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think E. Howard Hunt uh, got it right when he said to his son, St. John, when he believed he was about to die, this was published in Rolling Stone as his last confession, that the chain of command went from Lyndon Johnson to Cord Meyer to David Atlee Phillips to William Harvey and then to David Sanchez Morales. Now, below David, I believe, were the mechanics, their supervisors and coordinators, meaning the actual shooters who I certainly agree included Frank Sturgis. He appears to have fired the shot that entered Jack's right temple. It was a frangible or exploding bullet that set up shockwaves that blew his brains out the back of his already weakened cranium because he'd previously been hit in the back of the head by a shot fired by an anti-Castro-Cuban Nestor Tony Escadro from the, the broom closet window of a uranium mining company in the Dow Tex that was owned by or controlled by the CIA and or the Mossad. I'm speaking with author and researcher Dr. James Fetzer. Today's show, What Happened to JFK? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, uh, it's fascinating, but Richard Hook has done brilliant work that uh, supports the conclusion that George H.W. Bush was actually in the book depository supervising the three shots that were made with a Mandlicker Carcano. These were the only shots made with an unsilenced weapon, Bonnie, to create the acoustical impression of only three shots having been made. I agree with most of the analysis, but I doubt very much that they used any foreigners. Texans would have regarded Frenchmen as pansies. They wouldn't have thought they would follow through. Now, Antonio Vesiena, fascinatingly enough, was actually captured in a famous photograph uh, by a Dallas photographer and is captured in the right-hand corner of a color photograph on the cover of my first book, Assassination Science, which I only discovered in following the issue about Rafael Cruz having been in New Orleans in front of the trademark when Lee Oswald was handing out fair play for Cuba pamphlets. It was indeed Rafael Cruz, who was indeed the father of Ted Cruz, who was indeed an anti-Castro-Cuban, who was indeed in Dallas at the time. And for him to have been there, but also been with Antonio Vesiena of, of Alpha 66, among the most vicious of the anti-Castro organizations on Main Street together, just before the vehicle turned from Maine onto Houston, indicates to me uh, conclusively that he was on the fringe of the assassination, he was certainly not a shooter, but Donald Trump was widely ridiculed for making the point that Ted Cruz's father was there with Lee Harvey Oswald. We have long since confirmed that to be the case. Well, now, Jim, I want to ask you about a person that comes up in the afterword of St. John Hunt's book, uh, that afterword written by Eric Hamburg, and he talks at length about Richard Helms of the CIA, Richard Helms, who was appointed DCI by LBJ once LBJ became president. He seems to be in the shadows of this whole assassination. Do you have any information on him? Oh, Helms knew what was going on. There's no doubt about that. Uh, the fact is that Alan Dulles, whom JFK would retire with great fanfare, uh, uh, no doubt played a role in planning the assassination, but the key, the pivotal player, was Lyndon Johnson, 
who forced himself onto the ticket in Los Angeles in 1960. Uh, 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 he wasn't on Jack or Bobby's long list, much less their short. Jack had already extended an invitation to Stuart Symington to be his running mate, but he gave him overnight to think about it. Bobby went by the Johnson Sweep with a pro forma gesture, inviting him to run with Jack, never imagining he'd take it seriously. Instead, Lyndon jumped on it. He threatened to expose that JFK had Addison's disease and wasn't expected to live a long, healthy life, but he'd had dalliances with beautiful women, some of whom were spies for East Germany, both of which were true. And he added that if he were not on the ticket, then in his position as the powerful majority leader of the Senate, he would bottle up any legislative proposal set down by the White House, which would be dead on arrival. Bobby and Jack tried to figure a way out of this, but Lyndon had them boxed in, and they had to accede to his demand to be Jack's running mate. When one of Winston's wealthy supporters heard this, he burst into the Johnson suite cursing and swearing because now LBJ was going to help JFK become president. Bobby Baker took him into a bedroom and explained what they had in mind. He came out all smiles and said he thought that was an excellent plan. Bobby Baker would later declare that Jack would not live out his first term and that he would die a violent death. Lyndon Johnson would send his chief administrative assistant, Cliff Carter, down to Dallas to make sure all the arrangements were in place for the assassination after he had convinced Jack that he needed to travel to Texas to mend fences between warring Democratic factions there. Wow, that's really something. And as well in E. Howard Hunt's memo to uh, his son, uh, St. John, he, he states that the assassination was initially to take place in Miami, but that Lyndon Johnson changed the location to Dallas, citing, quote, personal reasons. Do you know anything about this? Well, there were two uh, uh, plots that were exposed. The, the, the Miami was... Uh circumvented by transporting JFK in a helicopter instead of a motorcade. The, the Chicago event was actually uh, undermined by a report from an FBI informant by the name of Lee, who appears to have been Lee Oswald, who Bonnie not only was recruited by the Office of Naval Intelligence when he was a recruit at San Diego, where I subsequently would be a series commander with 15 DIs and 300 recruits under my command going through the training cycle, but he would be stationed at Atsugi, our most secure base in Japan, from which the U-2 overflights were taking place. No one would be stationed there unless their loyalty was absolute. He made a pseudo-defection to the Soviet Union, apparently to provide the information about the altitudes. Uh, a summit meeting was forthcoming between Eisenhower and Khrushchev when Khrushchev accused the United States of spying on the Soviet Union. Eisenhower denied it. But Khrushchev was able to produce the pilot, Gary Francis Powers, and parts of the U-2, which they'd been able to shoot down, which, of course, led to the uh, termination of the summit plans and an increase in Cold War tensions instead of a re reduction. When Lee returned to the United States after marrying the niece of a KGB colonel, he wasn't received as a traitor to the United States, but was greeted by a CIA front organization, which gave him money to relocate to New Orleans himself while Marina uh, went to Dallas and was residing with the Payne family, Michael and Ruth, who had ties to the CIA, unbeknownst to them. Ruth would subsequently be instrumental 
in getting Lee a position at the book depository just two weeks before the motorcade. In the meanwhile, in New Orleans, he was being sheep-dipped by giving a phony persona as a pro-Castro communist sympathizer in order to set him up for the role of the Patsy in Dallas, which is why he was handing out those pamphlets in front of the trademark in the company of, of Rafael Cruz. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about the U-2? Now, supposedly that was shot down, but I had some information from someone else that indicated the tank was only half full and it it went down on its own. Well, now, that's very good, Bonnie. Appar- apparently, the Soviets had been trying to shoot down, but they didn't know the altitude and couldn't succeed. Now, Fletcher Prouty is the source of the story that actually the CIA had shorted the tank, the fuel tank in the plane, so that it appeared to the pilot that it was full when it was not. It was only partially full. So we have two alternative explanations about how the plane may have been brought down. If it wasn't shot down, then it did run out of fuel and crashed on its own. And, and frankly, both are about equally plausible. I need to add, by the way, in regard to the Chicago incident, that when Lee uh, was uh, apprehended and killed, Wagoner Carr, who was the attorney general of Texas at the time, launched his own investigation, discovered almost immediately that Lee was working as an informant for the FBI, that he had informant number 179, and that was being paid $200 a month right up to the time of the assassination, which ties in with an FBI informant having tipped off to the plan for an assassination attempt in Chicago. Uh, Lyndon would have preferred Dallas, of course, because he had complete control. In fact, Bonnie, it's fascinating. One of the documents now that's just been released reveals that the mayor of Dallas at the time, Earl Cabell, who was a brother of the uh, Lieutenant General Air Force, uh, Charles Cabell, who was deputy director of the CIA at the time of the Bay of Pigs, who together with the other deputy director, Richard Bissell, were, were dismissed by JFK when he discovered it had been a bait and switch. There had been no expectation that this ragtag band was actually going to succeed. The agency had already discovered that the Soviet Union had learned the date of the invasion and had notified Castro. So Castro, the Soviet Union, and the CIA all knew Castro knew we were coming. The only key person who did not know was John F. Kennedy, who undoubtedly would have called it off. So that we're in the fascinating situation that for years and years, we were unable to obtain the W-2 forms for the uh, alleged assassin of the President of the United States uh, when it, it, they only became available after they developed sufficient technology to fake it and then release it, because otherwise discovering he'd been paid $200 a month right up to the time of the assassination would have blown his cover. He would have no longer been a plausible candidate as the patsy. Now, Jim, uh, another question about that U-2 flight. Now, that was when Eisenhower was president, right? Yeah. And a friend of mine has done a lot of research on this, and he says that uh, Eisenhower wanted to have a rapprochement or some kind of a detente with the Russians, and that sending these U-2s over there, I I can't remember the story exactly, but maybe that Eisenhower uh, had stopped the U-2 flights, but they continued them, and they had this uh, U-2 go down over, uh, that it was Dulles that defied Eisenhower. Do you know anything about this? Oh, I think that story is very, very plausible, that the agency was resisting control. In fact, when, when, when Jack... Uh, one of the motives for taking out Jack, I mean, it was inspired by Lyndon's desire to accede to the presidency. 
in which position he could control the subsequent course of events. He would appoint his close friend and ally, Edgar, the FBI, as the sole investigative agency to cover it up, where the FBI never even questioned the 10 closest witnesses to the limousine. Others nearby weren't asked the crucial questions to reveal the important information they had. And if by some chance it got into the transcript, they simply edited it out. Uh, Dulles, uh, no doubt, was uh, playing games behind the scene and resisting. Jack was putting the covert ops of the CIA under the control of the Pentagon to curtail the agency. Neither liked that. The Joint Chiefs were upset because he'd not invaded Cuba. Contrary to the unanimous recommendation, he'd gone ahead and signed an above-ground death ban treaty with the Soviet Union, contrary to their unanimous opposition. Now he was going to pull our forces out of Vietnam, where they felt a stand had to be taken against the expansion of international godless communism. The agency has been a, a, a renegade for all too long, uh, Bonnie. It's been a, a travesty, committing coups and assassinations around the world, more than 80 in number. Most Americans first became aware of Iran in relation to the uh, uh, embassy hostage crisis, which William Casey, who was uh, Ronald Reagan's campaign manager, manipulated to the detriment of Jimmy Carter, They knew that if the hostages were to be released before the election, that Carter would win in a walk. So they negotiated arms for hostages on the grounds that the Iranians not release the hostages until after the inauguration, which was exactly how it played out. But most Americans think this was some overt act by the Iranians that was just uh, unjustified or unwarranted, when in fact the CIA had executed its first coup abroad in Iran in 1953, carried out by Kermit Roosevelt, who was a cousin of Teddy, to take out the democratically elected government of Iran and replace it with a dictatorial figure, the Shah. We have done this in many other countries. Our pretensions to be promoting democracy and freedom are ludicrous. I'm speaking with author and researcher Dr. James Fetzer. Today's show, What Happened to JFK? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Consider that our efforts to take out Bashir al-Assad from Syria. Most Americans to this day do not understand that uh, Assad is the democratically elected president of Syria, and he's supported by 80% or more of the Syrian people, a far greater popularity than our current president or even most of our most recent. So, you know, the hypocrisy of the United States, this is also manifest in 9-11, which was uh, an orchestrated event that was brought to us compliments of the CIA, the neocons, and the Department of Defense, most of whom were dual U.S.-Israeli citizens and the most sawed. The objective was to instill fear into the American people to support wars in the Middle East to take out the modern Arab states that served as a counterbalance to Israel's domination of the entire region and eventually to confront the Persian nation of Iran. Wesley Clark revealed the agenda when he gave a speech at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco in 2007, revealing the plan to take out the governments of seven countries in the next five years, beginning with Iraq and Libya, ending with Syria and Iran. It did not play out that way because of the intervention of Russia with the support of Iran. Uh, ISIS forces, which, believe it or not, Bonnie, we created. ISIS was created by the Defense Intelligence Agency in 2012, 
with the support of John Brennan, the director of the CIA, Hillary Clinton, the secretary of state at the time, and Barack Hussein Obama, president. Michael Flynn, who was the head of the DIA, opposed the creation of ISIS. And because of that, John Brennan recommended to, to Barack Obama that he ought to fire Michael Flynn, which was done. But it wasn't because Flynn was a traitor. It was because Flynn was actually standing up for the principles for which the Constitution is supposed to stand. He's received a very bad press from a media that is almost completely under the influence of the CIA. In fact, William Colby, in 1975, uh, in, in testimony to Congress, explained that the agency owns everyone, everyone of significance in the media. At that time, there was no distinction between the mainstream and the alternative media, where his revelation was followed by Carl Bernstein's publication in Rolling Stone in 1977, entitled The CIA and the Media, where he reported that high officials of the agency were boasting that their greatest successes had been with Time Life, the New York Times, and CBS. If you controlled Time Life, the New York Times, and CBS in that era, you virtually had a lock on the American news, and today the situation is overwhelmingly worse. Well, that's exactly right, Jim. And I found out from my friend Barbara Honecker at the Dallas conference that the famous quote from William Casey, she was in the meeting taking notes, and she is the source of William Casey's famous quote when he's asked by Ronald Reagan how he wanted to run his department and what he wanted to accomplish for the future. Quote, Casey said, our aim is that when Everything that the American public believes is false, we will know that we have accomplished our job. Something to that effect. That's right. That's right. He said, and Barbara Honiger confirms, that uh, our disinformation campaign will be a success when everything the American people believe is false. I mean, isn't that stunning, Bonnie? (laughs) The American people believe the government is there to benefit us, to keep us informed, to look out for our best interests. But actually, the situation is something more like the opposite, as difficult as that may be to believe. Now, Jim, because I so rarely do a live show, I was thinking maybe we should let some of the uh, Guns and Butter listeners in on the conversation. What do you think? I'd be pleased to do that, Bonnie. Please do that. Wonderful. Well, Jim... What astounds me when I look into this is how many groups of people absolutely viciously hated John Kennedy. The Cubans, the CIA, the military-industrial complex, the list goes on and on and on. And when I was in Dallas just a few days ago, my host drove me by the Kennedy Memorial in downtown Dallas, and I was horrified. It's a little plaque on the ground, and it's surrounded by a high, white, concrete wall. It looks like a prison. Yes, that's... That's very perceptive on all counts, Bonnie. In fact, they've done a lot of rearranging of features of Dealey Plaza to make it more difficult to conduct research, which includes moving light posts, for example. Uh, In a brilliant study of the excellent version of the Zapruder film, John P. Costello, Ph.D., who's a physicist with a specialty in electromagnetism, the properties of light and of images of moving objects, he discovered that when they reconstructed the film, they put the Stemmons freeway sign in improperly. 
So there's a whole series of frames in which the Stemmons Freeway sign is in the wrong position. In my presentations about the overview of the assassination, I show that phenomenon. He also discovered that the blood spray had been painted in, that it disappears in three frames, which are at one-eighteenth of a second apiece, or a sixth of a second, and that that's quicker than a lead a piece of lead, if you dropped it from JFK's forehead, would have taken to hit the, the floor of the limousine. Uh, also, they blacked out the blowout at the back of the head. They altered the x-rays. David Mantic, MD, PhD, who's a board-certified in radiation oncology, entered the National Archives already in late 1992, telling me in advance he thought he'd discover both that the x-rays had been altered on the one hand, and that there'd be evidence of a second shot to the head on the other. He was able to establish both. They altered the x-ray by using a material far too dense to be human bone to exclude the fist-sized blowout that had been first observed by Clint Hill when he rushed up to push Jackie back into the back seat. That actually was taking place when the limousine was motionless, because William Greer, after Jack had already been hit twice, once in the back, fired from the top of the Daltex, and a second time in the throat, fired from inside the triple underpass, pulled the limousine to the left into a halt to be sure he would be killed. Then he was hit in the back of the head, but one of the three shots fired from the Daltex slumped forward. Jackie eased him back up and was looking him right in the face. When he was hit in the right temple by that frangible or exploding bullet, fired from the intersection of the triple underpass and the big offense by Frank Sturgis. Sturgis, by the way, would ex acknowledge having shot JFK when he came to New York City to murder Marita Lawrence, who had been a, a mistress of Fidel, who'd been uh, traveling with some of the gunmen on their way to uh, Dallas. When she discovered what was going on, she wanted no part of it and left. In order to ensure that she not testify before the HSCA, Sturgis was dispatched to murder her. When he broke into her apartment, New York City Gold Shield detective Jim Rothstein put his thirty-eight to Sturgis's head and his partner to his heart. They took him into custody. Rothstein gave him the throwaway line, nice shooting. And Sturgis acknowledged that he'd shot JFK, that he'd done it because he betrayed the brigade at the Bay of Pigs, which was false, but an impression the CIA allowed to stand lest they divert their hostility upon the agency itself, and that he'd had dalliances with beautiful women, some of whom were spies with the, for East Germany, which, of course, was completely true. So, you know, we have a lot of information here. Because Marita survived, she, in closed testimony, was able to give the HSCA two boxes of documents about the assassination. So they actually knew what had taken place, which makes it all the more disheartening when they performed a complete cover-up. They even altered the medical evidence. Remember, there's this fist-sized blowout scene at Parkland. Clint Hill describes it. It's even in the Kennedy detail, a recent book about the performance of the Secret Service in Dallas, where he talks about describing this, this fist-sized, gaping, bloody blowout at the back of his right. head. Jim, we've only got a couple of minutes more, and I've got a couple of callers on the phone. Go for it. All right. Well, we've got Richard in Berkeley. Uh, go ahead, Richard. What's your question for Jim Fetzer? Well, I have a couple of questions tied together. Why is it so difficult to disseminate this real information on the JFK assassination? And is more known by the general public abroad than the general public in the United States? 
Yeah, you're absolutely right on both counts. It's because the media has been infested by the CIA. It was called Operation Mockingbird. In fact, you know, when, when William Colby testified in 1975 uh, to Congress that the agency owns everyone of significance in the media, he was speaking the truth, and the situation has only grown much worse. Most of the newspapers of the country don't even have investigative journalists any longer. They simply take the line that they're supposed to disseminate. I refer to the New York Times these days as the Langley Newsletter. You can't get the truth about any significant issue from ABC, CBS, NBC. CNN is virtually CIA 24-7. You can find, uh, you know, uh, identify a hundred of those who run CNN, and they're all dual U.S.-Israeli citizens. It's completely shocking. MSNBC, in my opinion, is CIA light with a feminist twist with Rachel Maddow, who my wife adores. I used to think Rachel was terrific until I discovered how much what she was reporting was divergent from the truth. Okay, thank you, Richard. Now we've got Mark in Berkeley. Go ahead, Mark. Oh, thank you very much. Um, I understand that there were several audio recordings of the assassination, which sounded like more than the three shots that were maximum possible by even a little marks for never mind a clown like Oswald, but I understand they were analyzed um, and, and found to be not echoes, but there were actually more than three shots, and it was proved scientifically uh, in England oh, yeah. and in the U.S. I don't know if you have any information yeah. on that. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. There was a shooter on top of the county records building. There was a shooter inside the triple underpass. There was a shooter on the grassy knoll. There was a shooter at the intersection of the triple underpass and the picket fence. There was a shooter in the Dow Techs. Uh, I mean, in, in, in the Dow Techs, there was a shooter in the book depository. Actually, that was Lyndon's personal hitman, Malcolm Mac Wallace, who murdered a dozen people for Lyndon, including one of his own sisters. The, the recording you're talking about was by a motorcycle patrolman who had his mic locked on. If you, if you listen and study the audio tape, it's indicative as many as uh, eight or nine shots anyway. I believe eight to ten, possibly even more, were actually fired during the assassination, but because only the one was with an unsilenced weapon out of the Dow tax, it created the acoustical impression that only three shots had been fired. Now, the uh, House Select Committee studied the audio tape, and initially uh, they subjected it to test. I talked with Donald Thomas at a conference on JFK in Dallas years ago where I was the co-chairman as to whether the, the microphones they arranged were sufficient to discriminate between shots fired from the Daltex and the, and the book depository. He acknowledged which I, what I was certain was the case. They were not. They only allowed them to test for shots from two locations, the grassy knoll and, and the vicinity of the, uh, of the book depository to obfuscate the importance of the evidence. Because of this audio evidence, the HSC concluded that he had probably been assassinated by a conspiracy. But believe it or not, there's an unsigned letter in the National Archives that disavows that finding in the National Archives, the finding of conspiracy, which means we're left with a Warren Commission report, which has been demonstrated to be hopelessly inadequate, I mean, Lee Oswald was framed. You had Roscoe White standing in for him. He was actually in the doorway. We've been able to confirm the deepest, darkest secret of the Warren Commission. Even the body that we see in the autopsy photographs is not the body of JFK. In my opinion, today, the Warren Commission is dead. 
Jim Fetzer, thank you. Been Marty, a- I, I, I so appreciate the invitation any time at all. You just let me know. I'll be here. I've been speaking with Dr. James Fetzer. Today's show has been What Happened to JFK? A former Marine Corps officer, McKnight Professor Emeritus at the University of Minnesota Duluth, the founder of Scholars for 9-11 Truth, his latest books include The Evolution of Intelligence and The Place of Probability in Science. Jim Fetzer's most recent articles can be found at jamesfetzer.blogspot.com. He has two JFK websites, assassinationresearch.com, which he co-edits with John P. Costella, Ph.D., and assassinationscience.com. His radio show, The Raw Deal, is broadcast Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Revolution Radio, Studio B, and The Conspiracy Guy on PRN-FM, Wednesdays from 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern and archived at conspiracyguy.podbean.com. He is co-editor of moonrockbooks.com and can be reached via Jim at moonrockbooks.com and at jfetzer at d.umn.edu. That's jfetzer at d.umn.edu. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Trying to steal your life You know what I'm saying Look what decides yourself For peace